Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crow portrays an ex-homicide detective, unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. There's this very famous scene where Alice meets the Cheshire Cat, and she asks him, where could she go? And he tells her, well, where do you want to get? And she says, I don't know. This is where the Bitcoin community is also, in some sense. We suddenly can go many, many ways, but we don't know where we're trying to go. And if we don't decide, we might end up in not as good places as we would like. Today's episode is sponsored by Bitstamp and Crypto.com. Hello, I'm Coindesk reporter Lee Quinn, here with Chaincode Labs researcher Clara Schickelman. We're going to talk about Bitcoin, Israel, and science fiction. Thanks so much for joining us today, Clara. Thank you for having me. I'm really excited to learn more about your Bitcoin journey. Can you tell me a little bit about how you started by studying math, but then somehow found your way into Bitcoin? So actually, I got interested in Bitcoin during my PhD in math. Just heard about this from friends and things like that. And then slowly but surely, I got more and more into the space. And as many people do, I started looking around, seeing what can I do, what is missing. And at this point, I feel like this is high time to get some basic research. And if there's anything that my training as a mathematician gave me is the ability to make very precise and rigorous statements, definitions, and things like that. And I do feel that this is something that this space needs. At Chaincode Labs, you're a postdoc fellow, right? What is the research that you're working on that's specifically related to either Bitcoin or the Lightning Network? So an exciting research I'm working on uh, right now with my co-authors has to do with the Lightning Network. We're sort of examining it from an economical perspective, trying to nail down really the basics of the field, answering some very, very basic questions, such as what is the cost of, uh, of a channel? What size of a channel you should open if you're going to buy coffee every day at favorite coffee shop? Should you be using the Lightning Network or should you be transacting on-chain? And once we nail down these uh, questions and we have the spaces to stand on, 
we're now going forward and asking ourselves, what is the implication of these numbers, of these formulas on the structure of the Lightning Network, especially looking into the future, thinking that let's assume it is widely used, people are using it to, to buy coffee, to get on the bus and things like that. How do we expect the network to look and behave? I don't do math at all, so you'll have to correct me if I'm wrong. But I've understood that microtransactions under the hood operate very differently than slightly larger transactions. Like if I were to be spending 50 bucks or 100 bucks, it would work very differently than if I'm spending a fraction of a penny. Do you think that microtransactions are likely and feasible and something that we can think of the network as useful for? Or do you think that that would be a much more complicated use case and we should be thinking about purchases? You know, coffee is like five bucks. In the Lightning Network, beyond the size of the transaction, something which is very, very important is the frequency. So if you're going to spend a penny per second for an hour, it will make a lot of sense to use the Lightning Network. If you want to spend a penny once a year, this is a whole different story. The frequency suddenly has a lot of meaning in the context of the Lightning Network. And this is, I think, where it power comes out very significantly because you're not going to spend a penny on chain. The fees will kill you. But the Lightning Network suddenly gives you this option if this is going to be frequent enough. Gotcha. That makes sense. Something that I found particularly interesting about your resume was that you'd briefly done some research associated with the IOTA Foundation. And I bring it up because there are many kinds of Bitcoiners. But if you see that someone who's very interested in Bitcoin also worked on an altcoin project, it might mean that they were attracted to Bitcoin for academic reasons or reasons that aren't as ideological, because sometimes there are Bitcoin purists who come to Bitcoin only and aren't interested in research related to any altcoin projects. For you, do you consider yourself a Bitcoiner or a cypherpunk? Or if not, what is your affiliation? How do you see yourself in the broader Bitcoin community? So I'm not huge on definitions in general. I think that first and foremost, I'm more of an academic. But beyond that, I think that with the whole cypherpunk thing, I think that I am in some sense in spirit, but not so much in practice. And I thought about this a lot lately. I think that there's a lot of people who are like me. Their main thing is academic, scientific, more sociological. I know they look at this from the law perspective. So they're not the classical cypherpunk people, but they do want to do right and they do want to take part in it. But it's not that accessible in many ways. So I am a very technical person. I code. So I could do that. I just have different priorities. But I do think that there's a lot of people like me who are, you know, cypherpunk in heart, but not really in practice. As an ideology, the belief of using privacy technology to promote positive social change. So like a lot of people like me, again, believe in privacy and believe in political change, but end up uh, not being very careful with their passwords and spending too much time on social networks, et cetera, et cetera. 
So I think there's a lot to be done. I was very much involved in the popularization of math. I did a lot of lectures about math and literature, Alice in Wonderland, trying to get people more attached to the subjects. And I think cypherpunk can also really use this. Yeah, that makes sense to me. So when there's all these different kinds of math problems that you could be focused on, what is it that you find so interesting and compelling about Bitcoin that you want to be focusing your research on that? Well, I think that this, this is a change I went through in the past years where I wanted to change from just doing a math problem to a math problem that could actually change something in this world that would mean something. And I really felt that Bitcoin and the Lightning Network and similar things really gave me this opportunity. Yeah. I also know that before your academic career, or maybe kind of breaking it up in the middle, uh, you also had military experience, uh, that you served in a military unit. How do you think that your experience in military shaped your approach to technology? Or do you think that it didn't have any impact and it was just like school? I don't know if it had much. No, not, not really. It's, uh, you know, I was in a high school filled with geeks, then went to the IDF with all of these geeks, then wrote my PhD surrounded by those. But you're pointing out something that I think is really crucial and is maybe missed here in the U.S. I don't know anything about your personal background. Have you spent any time in the U.S. or in Europe? Oh, yeah, yeah. I spent, so I just spent, I think it was almost a year in California. I spent a semester in Berkeley, which was outstanding. Yeah, it was quite amazing. Uh, in the Simons Institute, um, any academics here uh, are listening to this, you should definitely go to their programs. They're amazing. Yeah, but um, I've also spent quite a lot of time in Princeton as my advisor moved there. I lived in New York a bit. Gotcha. So what you had said previously is I was in a high school full of geeks. I went into an army unit full of geeks and then graduated back to a career where I was mixing with very similar circles. And I'm curious to hear when you had experiences in the U.S., did you feel that mathematics and technology sectors were slightly more sexist or were they the same? And it didn't really make a difference being a woman in mathematics in Israel versus in the U.S.? Oh, this is an interesting question. I'll reveal my hand here that I think I have an opinion. I think the U.S. is slightly more sexist. I think that in Israel, it's much more normal to see women in highly technical roles. And I think part of that might have to do with the fact that in a country of 8 million people, if you need to fill your tech sector, you have to train all of the military, regardless of gender, especially in roles like that, not combat roles. So gender doesn't really matter as much. Women have equal access to the same training and social circles of the geeks where, uh, where I was growing up. <laughs> I didn't really run around with too many geeks um, until later in my career. So I must say that I think there is a point to the fact that there is something different about being a, a woman in Israel, especially when I'm visiting the U.S. And I think that a lot of uh, women from generally uh, maybe the Middle East, Italy, Greece, this is like a groups that sort of we find each other in conferences and things like that. As one might have noticed, Israelis are quite outspoken. We speak loudly, <laughs> we speak our opinion, not exactly the shy type. 
So even if in Israel you're considered quite quiet or a bit shy, you get to the U.S. and you find yourself outspoken. <laughs> you find yourself uh, very, you know, I don't want to say loud, although occasionally loud, but you find yourself confident and people are a bit more polite. So it's a bit easier. So I think this is something you might feel that just Israeli women appear more confident when they find themselves, well, in a more polite kind of place. <laughs> that makes sense. Sometimes the tech sector in the U.S. can be very posh and buttoned up. So maybe I'm just noticing Israeli women more because in the U.S., when I'm in those kinds of fields or in a room that's full of a bunch of geeks, the women are quieter just by nature. Another thing that we both have in common, beyond both being uh, Jewish women, is you had mentioned you have a love of science fiction novels. And I was curious to hear what are a few of your favorite novels and um, what is it you like about them? Mm, so I like almost anything by Neil Stephenson. This is, I've uh, been reading, I hope I said his last name correctly. Yeah, I know you're talking about the writer of Snow Crash. Yeah, yeah exactly. Snow Crash was fantastic. I really enjoyed Seven Eves. And I feel like really he has such a wide imagination. I feel like he has like three ideas per page and you, you know, you flip a page, something new happens, some other view on technology. So I love this. I really, really enjoyed Seven Eves. I think because it was very far reaching. There is a fashion, I feel, lately in science fiction and generally of writing smaller books, which I also very much enjoy. But occasionally I really enjoy this Star Trek-y kind of feeling of let's think big, let's think huge, let's think thousands of years into the future, changing humanity. So I love this about Seven Eves. Well, it's not science fiction, but I really like fantasy. I grew up on Lord of the Rings. I still think it's one of the best books written. It's a bit tricky to nail down the greatness of this book, but I think it's also the, the big heart or the big spirit that it gives you. Bitstamp is the original global cryptocurrency exchange. Since 2011, Bitstamp has been the preferred exchange for serious traders and investors. Trusted by over 4 million customers, including top financial institutions, Bitstamp is built on professional-grade trading technology. Their platform is powered by a NASDAQ matching engine, and their APIs are recognized as the best in the industry. Download the Bitstamp app from the App Store or Google Play, or visit bitstamp.net slash pro to learn more and start trading today. That's bitstamp.net slash pro. Crypto.com offers one of the most convenient ways to purchase your favorite tokens or cryptocurrencies. It's also one of the most cost-effective ways, with a normal 3.5% credit card fee waived for all crypto purchases. What's more, with Crypto.com's MCO Visa card, you can get up to 10% back on things like food and grocery shopping. And when you buy gift cards with the Crypto.com app, you can get up to 20% back. So download the Crypto.com app today and enjoy these offers until the end of September. Some of the books you've mentioned are like classics, I feel like, in cypherpunk culture. 
the idea of being in love with fiction that really challenges you to think about new society and especially the ways that technology plays in that new society. It's very much a part of cypherpunk culture, cypherpunk history. Okay, I want you to close your eyes and imagine in the future, five years, 10 years, however far it is you want to go, but let's not go too crazy with like a century or something. Let's keep it slightly close to our lifetime. What do you imagine Bitcoin becoming? It's a hard one, I know. Yeah, it's a hard one. Um, it's easier for me to think about what I want Bitcoin to become. I don't know if it will happen. What do you want? I wish for Bitcoin to become a very strong base. And I wish for Bitcoin in general to solve many trust issues. I feel like as a society, we lost a lot of trust, definitely in the financial sector, but not only. We keep hearing fake news, we stop believing our doctors, all of things happened. And there is something about Bitcoin, it's magic in a sense, this trust without trust. Like I agree with a lot of people on something without any of us having to trust or know each other. I know I cannot be cheated. So this is definitely something that I hope to see Bitcoin utilized for in the future. So basically continuing to offer the properties that it does now, but for that just to simply continue growing in strength. Exactly. Continuing this and maybe both like stabling on the finance side, which is very, very important. So this is, I don't know, in the near future and maybe a bit more in the distant future, stabling and then... What do you mean by stabling? Stabling, I mean, uh, we have the financial part sort of figured out. Because now with the Lightning Network and microtransactions, there's a lot of things still happening. And there's with regulation, there's a lot of hoops to jump before we're done with figuring out the finance part. But once that is settled, and I truly believe it will be settled, maybe expanding this further to bringing trust to other parts of our lives. But what do you mean about settling that? Because reliability, I think what you were talking about when you meant stabling is to have a reliable software. And you're right that there's seems like an architecture that's pretty strong, pretty firm, can be relied upon. There's certainly scaling that needs to happen, some of the research you're doing. But in terms of it being stable, we have that core base. Regulation, it's like an ongoing issue in terms of how it is we can easily or not easily use this technology, what we're allowed to do and what we're not allowed to do. Um, I don't see there being like a one day where everything is, everyone in the world and every jurisdiction has the same permissions and this something being figured out. What do you imagine as settled? Does settled mean you can generally spend your Bitcoin at a falafel stand or does settled mean you're clear on what it is you can use it for and what it is regulations are? So I think the thing we need to settle now is the regulation, mostly. I think there's a lot of work still on Bitcoin Core and things like that. But that site is pretty much stable and running. A lot of exciting new things coming up, but I think we're past the stabling part. 
when it comes to regulation, being able to take it as part of our lives, we're still not there. So maybe that's more of a step. You don't have to use this on a daily basis, but this is an obvious solution, which is there for you. For example, I love traveling and Bitcoin could have saved me so much trouble. Hmm. <laughs> but yes, yeah, so, so for it to be one of the many tools you can use in your everyday life. Yeah, definitely. I feel your pain in terms of both converting things abroad and also trying to use Israeli banks to send money or, or make anything, any kind of purchase or transaction abroad, really. I'm sorry you had to go through this. It's, uh... <laughs> it's like a trauma for the banks. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> have you ever been to the Tel Aviv Bitcoin embassy? Oh, I have. I have. I used to spend a lot of time there. These days, well, nobody's spending much time outside anywhere. Um, but I used to go a lot to the Bitcoin embassy. I think it's a very, very special place. Uh, very easygoing, very open-minded, lots of very, very smart people there. Actually, recently I had a very interesting Bitcoin gathering experience. So especially in light of COVID-19, uh, the guys from the Bitcoin embassy decided to do a gathering using VR. And so not only people from Tel Aviv could come over, I think in the first one, we were about 50 people from all over the world. And I don't know if you had an experience with VR parties, but it's, it was, first of all, it felt like science fiction because all of us running around with our weird avatars talking about Bitcoin. Um, but besides that... It's a great technology that allows you to have a party dynamics, unlike uh, I don't know, Zoom or Google Meetup or something like that, where two people can't talk at the same time and you can't organically break into groups. The VR, we just, uh, we got there and then it was just like a party. You would go to one group, go into one conversation, you get bored, you go talk to another group. It was really outstanding. And I met really amazing people, which... Or from all over the world. I think something that you said that really struck me was you were talking earlier about trust. And it strikes me that there's this dichotomy between this technology that needs to reduce uh, trust, but on the other hand, being a part of the community building that technology, or at this stage so early, even sometimes using the technology, whether you need an engineer to fix your node or whether you need to use an OTC trade or something, uh, means building trusted communities. So like on one hand, the goal is to build something that you don't have to trust anyone to use. But the process of building it requires these very tight knit and social groups that very much trust each other. And I was curious to hear from you what you think is the relationship between local community trust when you have a network and trustlessness for the broader global spectrum. So I think local communities offer a trust on a personal level, which is difficult to get on a more over the internet with people that you don't actually see. Mm -hmm. That being said, being the geeky teenager we discussed earlier, some of my best friends were over IRC and I was lucky enough for them to be trustworthy people. But looking back it's not there is something not as trustworthy uh, with the person you just 
meet over Twitter, chat with over IRC, write something over mailing list. There is something more personal about just sitting down, having a beer with somebody and listening to them. Yeah, I think a lot of times when people imagine digital economies, they think of it purely as digital as opposed to another realm or, or reflection of our, our lives. There's no difference anymore between IRL and virtual. Half of our lives are online, but on the other hand, half of them aren't, and there's always hardware associated somewhere. So wherever it is you physically are is probably where you're going to be building more trusted relationships, um, and that includes academic circles, you know, for example, um, or Bitcoin. I'm curious to hear from you, is there anything that we haven't touched on when it comes to Bitcoin, when it comes to your thoughts about the Lightning Network? Um, it could even be about mathematics and technology in general that you think is really important for us to know and something for us to think about this weekend. I think something which is very important when it comes to research is for us to take a step back. As we talked about earlier, Bitcoin is stable. And we should take a step back and ask ourselves, what is it that we're exactly trying to do here? And I think it's especially important when we're looking at the Lightning Network, where there's a lot of decisions still to be made. And the Lightning Network can go in very, very different directions. Hopefully, our paper will be out in the near future. And I can tell you more about this that we really, really need to think about where do we want to go and then try and get there. Speaking of books, one of my favorite books is Alice in Wonderland. There is this very famous scene where Alice meets the Cheshire Cat and she asks him where should she go? And he tells her, well, where do you want to get? And she says, I don't know. He answers, well, it doesn't matter. So it's not an exact quote. But this is the general spirit. And I feel in many cases, this is exactly where people find themselves. And I think this is where the Bitcoin community is also in some sense. We suddenly can go many, many ways, but we don't know where we're trying to go. And if we don't decide, we might end up in not as good places as we would like. It's a really good point. And I'm glad you brought it up because now I'm going to spend the weekend thinking about where do we want to go or where do I as someone who uses Bitcoin and maybe where do other people as other people who use Bitcoin want to go. Thank you so much for joining us today, Clara. Thank you so much for having me. Once again, this is Coindesk reporter Lee Quinn. Make sure to stay tuned for more podcasts every week. For more interviews and insights, check out coindesk.com. Take care, everybody. <laughs>